Good morning. It is good to be here and to share God's word with you. I come not to preach a sermon, but to bless you with God's word. This is a different perspective, and I'm looking forward to sharing God's precious word. Thank you for your kind introduction. My last name is Lo, L-O-W, which is very easy to remember. My wife is sweet, and therefore we are the sweet and low family. And we are both equal before God. Amen? Good. Now, um, the, I live in Colorado Springs for many years right now, but uh, have always traveled overseas in different parts of the world. We do have training institutes in Asia specializing in the equipping of indigenous pastors and missionaries because they know their own language and culture and they are able to go to places that are not uh, accessible to, to foreign missionaries and, and therefore they will go into these inaccessible places, the so-called unreached people groups and begin to evangelize and plant churches among them. So we would appreciate your prayers as we continue to plant churches among the rich. Now you may be wondering as to what kind of accent I am speaking. Just to remind you, I'm speaking Texan. <laughs> I want to begin by referring us to a portion of the scripture in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, you have the church of Antioch. Oh, yeah, you can see that. I, I thought I was seeing over that side too. The church, the church in Antioch, in Acts chapter 13, is a very, it's a multicultural church. Acts chapter 13, in a church in Antioch, they were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And then while they were worshiping the Lord together, and uh, verse 2, uh, in the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit say, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And from there, you understand that Paul and Barnabas were sent out to plant churches among the Gentiles. Now, before I come to this text today, let us go back to the context and learn something about some of the key principles of cross-cultural missions. And I believe that all of us, in, including this church, is called to evangelize and the missions across our own racial or national borders, especially to the unreached. We are commanded to make disciples of all nations. And every nation refers to every ethnic group that is on earth. 
Therefore, you and I are under the command of our Lord Jesus Christ to reach beyond our own cultural context to those who are different from us. What are some of the basic principles of cross-cultural missions? Now, this is a big topic. You can teach and study about cross-cultural missions in Denver Seminary or any other seminary for three years. And to scale it down to just 30-minute sermon is a near impossibility. So this is my first coming to this church. If I do not finish this today, I am looking forward to my second coming. And now, in order to go back to the context, in order to understand illumining this Acts chapter 13, we have to go back to Acts chapter 11, where there arose, of course, a persecution of the church in Jerusalem, and then the disciples began to be dispersed, and then they went up north to Antioch. And in Acts chapter 11, it says, well, in chapter 11, here, it says that uh, they were men, uh, and those who were scattered by the because of the persecutions uh, in connection with Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenician, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyrus, Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch, and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now from Antioch, uh, from Jerusalem, the church began to spread from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now Jerusalem and the church, maybe it's the, the next the slide before that. Yeah. If the church started in, in Jerusalem in, in year 80, 33-80, by the time they traveled to Antioch, it is about, hold on to that one. Next one. I, uh, by the time they traveled to Antioch, it's about seven years. In terms of chronological sequence, it's about seven years later they eventually to Antioch. By the time Paul went forth and planted churches in Thessalonica, Galatia, Philippi, Corinth, Ephesus, it is about 50 to 60 AD. So from the time when I first started in Jerusalem until the Pauline churches, it is about a 30-year span. It has taken them quite a long time to go forth to the unreached in that part of the world. But now at this time, when they begin to reach out to Antioch, it was about seven years after the church was established in Jerusalem. And here in Acts chapter 11, it says that there were people from, uh, they travel as far as Phoenician, the next one, Phoenician, Cyprus, and Antioch. The map. Next one. Men from Cyprus and Cyrene showed us the map again, the next one. Yeah, okay. They were traveling from Jerusalem up to Phoenician, which is up north, and then Antioch, 
and then they were going to Cyprus. And then he says, they were people, they were men, some of them, from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch. Where is Cyprus and Cyrene? There's next one. Cyrene is in North Africa. And they went from Cyrene, Cyprus, and then also to Antioch. That's where the church in Antioch was formed because of believers going from Jerusalem as well as Africa and Cyprus and went into Antioch and he began to form a new church which is a multicultural church. Now he says, they begin to speak, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now in verse 19 of chapter 11, it says, they were telling the message only to the Jews. They were telling the message, I'm going to forget about the PowerPoint. It's very difficult to coordinate because I do not have the, the uh, anyway. They, they were telling the message only to the Jews. Then those people who are from Cyprus and Cyrene went about and began speaking to the Greeks also. Now, this is a very important uh, uh, event. That is a tremendous breakthrough. They first went to Antioch and they spoke only to the Jews. Then the believers from Cyrene, from North Africa, and, uh, Cypr and Cyprus, they went over to Antioch and they began to speak to the Greeks also. When they first went to Antioch, they spoke only to the Jews. Then only they decided to speak to the Greeks also. The missions to the Gentiles did not begin with Paul, even though we always say that Paul was apostle to the Gentiles. The mission to the Gentiles and to the Greeks started in Acts chapter 11 with these believers who are not named here. They are unknown heroes of the gospel who went forth and spoke to the Greeks, to the Gentiles first. Are you with me? All right. So the mission to the Gentiles started with these people who are speaking to the Greeks also. Imagine now, they've started only preaching to the Jews and then they begin to preach to the Greeks. That the they begin, therefore, to break out of their ethnocentricity. At first, they only concentrated to the Jews. Later on, they begin to break out of their ethnocentricity and begin to reach out to the non-Jews, which is very significant. It is extreme. The early, the history of the early church Focus only to the Jews, but later on they break out of the ethnocentricity to reach out to the non-Jews. 
My dear brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, very often in our cross-cultural missions, we sometimes tend to only evangelize to those people who are like us. I know of many churches who send missionaries overseas, but basically they are ministering to North Americans. We praise God, there have been tremendous movement of reaching across the Western world to other people of different ethnic groups, different cultural backgrounds, when they go forth in cross-cultural missions. There must be a breakthrough in the Church of Jesus Christ to go forth not only to our own ethnic group or to our own cultural group, to our own national group, to those people who are different from us. That is cross-cultural missions, and they started here in Acts chapter 11, breaking forth from their ethnocentricity. I'm not saying that we should not be conscious of our ethnicity. We can be ethnoconscious without being ethnocentric. There's a difference. Ethnoconscious means that we can be conscious of our own cultural background and appreciate the cultural heritage. But we do not take our own cultural heritage and our cultural speciality to become a standard on which we evaluate other culture. When we begin to take our own culture, becoming a standard to evaluate other culture, and saying that whatever is different from us, then we fall into the trap of ethnocentricity rather than ethnoconsciousness. Are you still with me? Good. Because, you know, when I teach in India, when I ask them, do you understand me? And, of course, uh, they, they will say this. And then you, the, I don't know whether this means yes or no. Because in Indian culture, again, in cross-cultural context, when they check this, it can mean, yes, I agree. Or it can mean, I disagree. So you really don't know whether it is they agree or not agree. Until, of course, you ask them some questions for feedback. In any case, in cross-cultural context, there must be always, a, uh, a, you, we must be prepared to lay aside our own ethnocentricity, ethnicity, and then begin to appreciate the culture of another people group. In the text again, it says here, they begin to preach the good news about the Lord Jesus. Which is very interesting. When they, were when they were talking to the Jews, if you read the Bible in Acts chapter 11, in the further context, further up, verse 17, when they were talking to the Jews, they say that they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to think that I could oppose God? He says that when they were talking to the Jews, they say, the Lord Jesus Christ. But now when they are preaching to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, they say, the Lord Jesus. What's the difference? The difference is that 
when they were talking to the Jews, they say, Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. When they, take, they are talking to the Greeks, they say, Lord Jesus. They left out the word Christ when they are talking to the Greeks. It, is, it does not mean that they minimize Jesus Christ. It means that they are beginning to learn how to speak the gospel and proclaim the gospel cross-culturally. Let me explain. To speak to the Jews, they can talk about Christ because they have a background knowledge of the Messiah. They are aware of the Old Testament. They are aware of the scriptures about Jesus, the Messiah. To the Greeks who has no knowledge of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, they just left it out and just say, Lord Jesus. Only after they come to know Jesus Christ in the discipleship program, then they begin to teach them that Jesus is the Christ. They begin what we call contextualize the gospel in the language where they can understand are you with me? They begin to preach the gospel and use terms that will relate to them much more than the terms they use to the Jewish audience. What do, they, what, what do I mean by that? What we need, therefore, in cross-cultural missions is not to preach the gospel in Western terminologies. Very often, we use the four spiritual laws, which is good, but it is Western thinking. But we have to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in the language and terminologies that, uh, that is understandable to the audience. We must be able to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ without minimizing the supremacy of Jesus Christ in a way that will penetrate into their worldview. Let me give you an example. If you were to look at John chapter 9, in John chapter 9, you know about the story about Jesus healing the blind man. Are you familiar with that text? John chapter 9, Jesus healed the blind man before that. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents sinned that he was born blind? The disciples asked Jesus, what happened? Does this man sin or his parents sin that he was born blind? Now, in the Asian context, let me share with you some of the Asian insight and worldview. When they read this text, they would say, ha-ha. This person born blind because of the sin of the past, and therefore he's being reincarnated to become a blind man. You follow me? But Jesus Christ in this miracle healed the blind man. He put the spit on the ground, make some mud from the saliva, put on a man's eyes and asked him to go and wash in the pool. And after washing in the pool, he was able to see and his sight was restored. 
Now, in an Asian context, if a person is born blind, now it's also now prevalent in the new age movement here in the United States. Because the new age is really not new age, it's really old age. They believe that if you sin in the past life, you will be reincarnated to become another, in another state of being. And so this blind man was born blind because of the karma, they call it karma of the past. Because you have done bad things, evil things in the past, therefore you are now being reincarnated to become a blind man because of what they call the law of karma. Right? Now, my question to the non-believers whenever I study that passage of scripture is, now, in other words, this blind man is subjected to the law of karma. What did Jesus do? The person, the non-believer would have to say, Jesus healed the blind man. When Jesus healed the blind man, what does that say to the Lord of Karma? He broke the Lord of Karma. Now, I'm not going to debate with them whether the Lord of Karma is biblical or not biblical. I just make an assumption if there's a Lord of Karma. Jesus Christ therefore broke the law of karma and rescued him from the law so that he's liberated and being able to see. Are you with me with the reasoning? If Jesus Christ broke the law of karma, who is greater? The law of karma of Jesus Christ. Amen. non-believer would have to say Jesus is greater. Now my next question to him is that if you, do you want to continually subject yourself to the Lord of karma or subject to Jesus Christ who can set you free? He will have no choice but to say Jesus Christ. That is what we mean by taking the scriptural text and the gospel of Jesus Christ packaging it and articulating it in terms that they can understand and penetrate into their worldview. And then you rescue them out from their worldview into the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ. That is what we call contextualization or indigenization of the gospel in the local cultural religious context. If Jesus Christ, therefore, is greater, then you ought to follow Jesus Christ. Now, there's another thing, too. If he was born because of the Lord of Karma, he is irrevocably bound by that law. Therefore, in the Buddhist doctrine or the Hindu doctrine, there is a doctrine of deserved suffering. You deserve to be born blind because of the karma of the past. If you deserve to be blind, now there is a contradiction in a system. 
if you deserve to be blind because of the path, then why should I help you? I should not help you at all because you deserve it. Right? Now, if I therefore, out of the goodness of my heart, help you, I would be therefore intervening into the operation of the Lord of Karma. If I therefore intervene into the operation of the Lord of Karma, my good works will therefore be considered as bad works and therefore would incur bad karma upon me. Are you with me? It is a very complicated system, but you begin to unpackage their worldview and begin to help them to see the bankruptcy of their belief system. Jesus, therefore you see Christian compassion to a Buddhist or Hindu context speaks volumes. In Myanmar, we have an orphanage of 40 children. And the demonstration of compassion towards these children who is so locked in to the system of belief of the Lord of Karma and deserve suffering speaks volumes about the power of Jesus Christ. And therefore, you begin to articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ not only in words but also in action. That is the indigenization of the gospel message that is understandable to the audience. Here in Acts chapter 11, they begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in a manner that is understandable to the audience. They proclaim the Lord Jesus. Now in Asia, I came from Asia, grew up in Asia, got converted in Asia. We, we, we love to, to, to find out about life after death. And I was traveling on the plane from Los Angeles to Singapore, and that day I was tired. I say I do not want to speak to anybody. I just want to sleep. I was on the aisle seat. The middle seat was empty. And at the window seat, there was a young lady. And the flight took off. I wanted to sleep, but the other lady wants to talk. Uh-oh. And then she begins to ask me questions. And then I, and she always, some, sometimes she will ask me, you know, uh, and finally she asked, what do I do? I thought that I would tell her I'm a preacher. But usually when I say to a person, I'm a preacher, they will stop talking. <laughs> then I say to her, I'm a preacher. And she said, oh, that is interesting. I want to ask you a question. I said, oh, no. She wants to talk some more. <laughs> And she asked about life after death. I said, wonderful. That's a wonderful question. I said, if you want to know about life after death, there are three ways to find out. The first way is to ask somebody who hasn't died yet. You ask a living philosopher. You ask a professor at Harvard University. The person who hasn't died yet about life after death. The living person will have no good answer about life after death. Why? Because he hasn't died yet. And you say, yes, correct. He hasn't died yet. He has, therefore, the person who is living has no answers to life after death. He also has no answers to life itself because he hasn't lived his whole life. 
He said, yes, correct, correct, correct. So method number one is not good. You don't want to ask a living person about life after death because he has no answer. Second method is to ask the dead person. So in Asian world, we love to consult the dead person. Hello, how are you after you die? I say it is not possible to have any answer from a dead person. I can prove to you, can I ever talk to the dead? Yeah, yeah, can you? I say, yes, 